Please pray with me. Father God, I am insufficient for the task this morning, but I pray that you would speak through me through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, by the words that you spoke long ago. Pray, Lord, that you would help me to be faithful as I proclaim the truths of your word this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, all of us have been expected to submit to someone else's authority. In fact, most of us are expected to submit to the authority of others every single day in the workplace. If you are a child, you're expected to submit to the authority of your parents because they are your parents. If you're a student, you submit to the authority of your teachers because they are your teachers. If you are an employee, you submit to your employer because you want to keep earning a paycheck. Now, in all of these circumstances, we are expected to submit to the authority of someone else because they have a position of leadership or authority over us. Who they are requires a response. And the same thing is true of God. And this morning we will see from God's word that the attributes of our almighty creator should lead all of us into loyal submission to him. The attributes of our almighty creator should lead each of us into loyal submission to him. In other words, when we rightly understand who God is, we respond in submission. Now this morning we are looking at the second half of Psalm 139. We're looking at verses 13 through 24. And two weeks ago, we looked at the first half. And because every psalm stands alone as its own literary unit, we can't begin to dive into the second half without first remembering what we learned in the first half. If to do so would to uh, do an injustice to God's word in the psalm. So remember b- back with me two weeks ago. And if you weren't here, just uh, maybe this will catch you up to speed. But we learned that this psalm is composed of four stanzas of six verses each, verses 1 to 6, 7 through 12, 13 to 18, and 19 through 24. And we looked at the first two stanzas two Sundays ago, and we learned in the first stanza that God is omniscient, that he knows all things. And we learned in the second stanza that God is omnipresent, that he is present in all places. And we determined from those two stanzas that Ultimately, the attributes of our Almighty God are comforting to the people of God. Remember that we saw that these truths were communicated by David uh, through a series of merisms. We said that a merism was a figure of speech that uh, expresses totality through two contrasting parts. So the text says that God knows when we sit and when we rise. He knows when we go out. He knows when we lie down. What that's saying is that God knows every single move we make. And we saw in the second stanza that that God is in all places. There is no escaping the presence of God. If we go up to the heavens, verse 8, God is there. If we go to the depths of the earth, God is also there. If we rise in the morning in the far east with the sun, God is there. And if we settle in the far west across the sea, God is also there. And as we come to the end of those two stanzas, verses 1 through 12 of this psalm, you might ask, like David did, how do we know that? That sounds great that God knows all things. That sounds great that God is present in all places. 
But how can I be sure of that? How can I know that? And the answer for David was because God made me. Because God created me. If God can fashion together human life in the way that he has and in the way that he does, then nothing is impossible for God. In the third stanza this morning, we will see that God is not only omniscient, he is not only omnipresent, but God Almighty is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. So look with me now at verse 13, stanza number three. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Now you might remember back to verses 11 and 12 at the end of stanza 2 when, God was, or when David was describing God's omnipresence and he was talking about darkness and light, day and night. It makes no difference to God Almighty. He can see the same in all circumstances. He's not hindered by these things as we are. And as David reflected on that, he thought of one particularly dark place and that was the womb. And he said in verse 13, for you created my inmost being, a reference to his spirit, the spiritual component of who he was and who we are as human beings. And then in verse 15, he said, my frame was not hidden from you, a reference to his physical being. So what David was saying was that, God, you know, you created all of me, every component of my life, every component of my existence, everything that makes me a human being. God, you created me, my spiritual being, my physical being. You created all of me. And as we're talking about God's creation, as we've sung about it this morning and and heard it sung about, it's important for us to stop and to realize that when we read these words, it wasn't just God the Father present at creation. We worship a Trinitarian God, and we sung about that this morning. Glorify the Father, glorify the Son, glorify the Spirit, The full Trinitarian Godhead was present at creation. Remember back to Genesis 1, 26, when God said, and let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground. And remember in John chapter 1, when John is describing theological truths about Jesus Christ, his story of Christ's birth, He skips a lot of the details, the birth details that the other Gospels do. And instead he focuses on the fact that that Jesus, the revealed Word of God, created all things. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And so as we stop and as we reflect on the fact that God created all things, and specifically that he created all of us, We recognize that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were all present and involved in that process. Jesus is not just our Savior. He is that, and thank goodness he's that. 
but he's our creator as well. Now look back at Psalm 139. Look at the language and the imagery that David uses to describe his creation. He says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You wove me together in the depths of the earth. David was describing God's workmanship as he very carefully and very intentionally created every human being in its mother's womb. And as David reflected on that truth, he was overwhelmed. And, he, and he, had to, he had to praise God. He said, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He stopped. And that's what God's word and the truths about God should do for all of us. Every time we recognize certain truths about who God is, we stop and we can't help but bow down before him and to worship him. And another way of translating verse 14 is, I praise you because I am fearfully set apart. It's the idea of being created uniquely. Now, as human beings, we are not just created to be different from all other creation. We are that. We are created in the image of God and God's likeness, unlike the fish and the birds and the other creatures that move along the ground. But we're not just unique in that sense. We're also unique in the sense that no two of us are just the same. That God so carefully creates every human life that none of us are exactly like anybody else. And I can honestly remember as a child hearing that truth, that, that no two human beings are just alike. And I was fascinated by it because I, I began to try to think in my mind of all the different color combinations of eyes and, and hair and skin tone and facial contours. And wondering how in the world, God, could you think of so many different ways for people to look? But he does. Because God has created us carefully, intentionally, Without error, God makes no mistakes in his creation. Nothing in God's creation is done partially. It is all done to reflect who he is. Now notice again how David describes the womb in this passage. He says in verse 15, he calls the womb the secret place. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Another reference to the womb. Now, in that day, and even to some extent in our day today, the womb is, is a somewhat mysterious place. It, it's a dark place. We don't really know fully what goes on there. Now, today we do have uh, the technology to see ultrasounds, and there's, really so, there's something today even called a 4D ultrasound, which is an incredible experience to see a developing baby inside the mother. And, and if the baby's turned just right, you can see some extraordinary features. But even then, most of us are left to the expertise of those that are performing the ultrasound to know what different things are. Those that point out maybe a heart or kidneys or, or other things, we would have no idea because the image is still somewhat blurry for most of us. But the picture here is that it's not in any way whatsoever blurry to our creator. What does it say in verse 16, the first part? It says, your eyes saw my unformed body. What we don't see and what we don't know God knows. Today, there are a number of people advocating something called open theism. And what this teaches is that 
certain events about the future God doesn't know yet. He's left certain things open for chance. And so this, this line of thinking would bind to the fact or, or, would, or would communicate that God doesn't know what's going to happen until certain decisions are made. Yeah, God might know some things in the future, but he doesn't know all things in the future. And I want you to know this morning that that, that line of thinking does not hold water under the test of the Bible because in verse 16 of Psalm 139, it says that all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Before our biological mothers even knew they were pregnant, God was writing out the days of our lives. We don't know the future. We think we do, but we don't. Psalm 20, or Proverbs 27.1 says, uh, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. God knows what every day may bring forth. We don't. Isn't this why we have savings accounts? Because we don't know what sort of unexpected expenses will come up in the future. And, and, and we've all faced circumstances where we have had to uh, pay for something or pay for some repair that we did not anticipate taking place. And uh, that's especially uh, near to me right now because we're trying to figure out how to repair a roof that we just had replaced last year. And I certainly didn't expect it to be leaking again so quickly, but it is. And in life, we have to be prepared for these sorts of things. We're surprised by outcomes, but our God is not. And those of you that know uh, your Psalms are probably familiar with Psalm chapter 51, when David is confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. He's confronted with the fact that he has committed adultery and that he has then committed murder and he, he suddenly realizes the gravity of what he's done and he repents before God and he says, God have mercy on me. And in verse 5 of that psalm he says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now David was not saying, and by nature of scripture, God is not saying that the act of conception itself is sinful. We know that that's not truth, true from God's word. But what David was saying was that he has been sinful since the beginning of his existence. He tied his sin nature to conception, implying that his existence began, began at conception. And you say, why is that important? And it's important because the biblical view is very clearly based on these two passages and others that life, human life, begins at conception. Now recently, we remembered September 11th, 2001, and we remembered the tragic events that took place that day when our country came under attack uh, from an enemy and terrorist uh, unexpectedly and uh, surprisingly took the lives of over 3,000 Americans in one day. And our lives have forever been changed as a result of it. We have heightened security measures in our own country and we've all been reminded of the fragility of life. And September 11, 2001 will remain a tragedy. But I also want to tell you this morning that September 30th, 2012 is also a tragedy in United States history. Because most likely over 3,000 unborn babies will be killed today because of abortion. And since 
Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 50 million abortions have taken place just in the United States alone, which, if you do the math, is an average of over 3,500 every single day for the last 39 years. And as Christians, as the people of God, we must stand against abortion. But also, let's be known by people who value life at all ages, from conception to death, and who value life in all circumstances, from riches to poverty. Because our God values human life, you and I, as the people of God, must value human life. And as David reflected on God's love and his power and uh, his value of his own human life, he reflected on, the, on God's thoughts toward him. The greatness of God's love and his power is portrayed through the number of thoughts that our creator has about every single one of us every single day. We couldn't even begin to count them because if we tried, they would outnumber the grains of sand. We serve a God who loves us, all of us and values human life. And because our God values human life, we must value human life. And it is time for us to stop developing our own self-image and self-worth through the eyes of our culture and the eyes of our world and start developing a self-image and a self-worth that reflects the worth and the value that God places on every single one of us. So ladies, I urge you to Do not determine your own self-worth through what our world currently defines as outward beauty or the amount of attention that you get from the opposite sex. And men, I encourage you not to define your own self-worth through job performance and success in the eyes of this world. We serve a God who knit us together in our mother's womb, who wove us together in the depths of the earth, and who wrote out the days of our lives before we were even born, and who thinks about us constantly. Friends, each and every one of you is extremely valuable to your creator, and that is cause for celebration. And as David reflected on these truths, he had had caught himself in this sort of meditation about these theological truths of God, that God is omniscient, that he's omnipresent, and that he's omnipotent, And then suddenly at the end of stanza three, he says, when I awake, I am still with you. In other words, these truths about God are not only true when we think about them, they're true all the time. God is unchanging. The God that we serve is an incredible creator and who he is demands a response. And it's in stanza four, verses 19 through 24, that we see David's response. So look with me now at verse 19. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way 
everlasting. Now this is where these theological truths about who God is meet with David's real life. And the reality that David finds himself in is that he is being chased by enemies. Enemies not only of Israel and Israel's king, David, the one that God has appointed over that nation, but enemies of God, wicked people, people that are opposed to God's people and opposed to the very work of God himself. And that's very important for us this morning as we look at this stanza because if we don't first establish that fact, what David says right here appears extremely selfish and cold. After all, did it Jesus say to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us? And now all of a sudden David is, is asking God to slay his enemies and speaks of his hatred for them. Well, David was using hate in the sense that Jesus used hate. When he said in Luke 14, 26, if a man comes after me, he must hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, Yes, even his own life, if he's going to be my disciple. If he's going to follow me, his otherworldly relationships must appear as hate. Now, in Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament, Hebrew, Hebrew, excuse me, hate essentially means to reject. And love essentially means to choose. And so the way that David was using hate here and the way that Jesus was using hate in Luke 14 is to describe our allegiance. That as the people of God, God Almighty, our creator, is the one who demands and deserves our primary allegiance in this life. And if anything ever threatens that or hinders that, we must be prepared to reject it and to choose God in return. And that's what David was facing. The reality was that these wicked people that oppose God will eventually be slain by God if they do not repent. But in the meantime, God's people do not want to be identified with them. And I don't know what it is in your life that hinders your walk with God. It it might be wicked people. And the temptations associated with being with them. It might be a devotion to sports. It might be a devotion to playing sports or watching sports. It might be a hobby. It might be an addiction. It could be a number of things. But when faced with the choice and the hindrance, every single one of us must be ready and willing to reject those things in order to fully pursue God Almighty. He deserves all of us. Now, one distinction needs to be made in light of this psalm and in light of this stanza. Psalm 139 is not telling us to ignore the lost. And you might ask, based on the the verses that I just read, how do you know that? And I know that because the rest of the Bible doesn't tell us to ignore the lost. And when we study and interpret any part of the Bible, we do so through the lens of all of Scripture. So I know that Psalm 139 is not telling any of us to ignore the lost because the Bible doesn't teach us to ignore the lost. Jesus didn't teach us to ignore the lost. 
After all, didn't Jesus hang out with tax collectors and sinners? And when he was asked why he did so, he said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. None of us are more worthy than anyone else of receiving, hearing, responding to the grace of God. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so the picture here and the truth here is not that we as the people of God who are so devoted to God are somehow looking on everyone else as if they are lesser and not deserving of the grace of God. But the picture is that we throw off anything that hinders our relationship to our creator and pursue him fully. A picture of total allegiance, of total surrender, of total submission to God and the things of God. Remember, Jesus found himself constantly trying to delineate between those that were just fascinated by him, those that were following following him in the crowds in order to, to get something for themselves, and those that were truly interested in pursuing him and worshiping him and recognizing him as Savior, as Master, as Lord. And our Creator deserves our full devotion as Creator, as Master, as Savior, and as Lord. And who he is demands that all of us respond to him in total submission. And when we, like David, recognize that God knows all things and that God is present in all places and that God is all-powerful and that he loves us beyond our own comprehension, we will not, we cannot help but respond to him in submission, recognizing his primary allegiance in our lives, giving him lives of worship and lives that glorify him on a day-to-day basis. And when that is the case, we do desire for God to search us and to know us and to test our thoughts, to see if there is any offensive way in us, to expose and reveal sin in our lives because when we see who he is, we want to respond in total and complete devotion to him. We desire that God would lead us in the everlasting way, the way of the righteous, as described in Psalm chapter 1. And so this psalm ends in the same place that it begins. In the beginning, David acknowledged, God, you have searched me and you know me. And in the end, after examining who God is, David desired for God to continue searching him and to continue knowing him and to continue revealing sin in his own life. We see this pattern throughout Scripture of people responding in obedience, in submission, in worship when they get a glimpse of who our God is. Remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he had this vision of God high and lifted up and his immediate response was, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. 
And I live among a people of unclean lips. And I have seen the Lord Almighty. When you have seen God Almighty, when you have recognized who he is, you realize the depths of the sin in your own life and you cannot help but bow down before him and to worship him and to submit to him and to give him your total allegiance and total loyalty. And so I ask you this morning, have you surrendered to your creator? Have you realized your sinfulness in the light of a sinless and perfect God? Have you responded in total allegiance with your life to pursuing and following after God Almighty? And in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a hymn of response. And so I ask that you would examine your own life and listen to the Holy Spirit's leadership as the Spirit of God leads you into repentance once again, or maybe even for the first time before your great God. Would you pray with me? Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen.